everyone, and welcome to Social with the Side of Justice, a multi-episode series where we talk about various topics centered around the importance of social justice. The main theme of our podcast this year is the lack of diverse representation in literature, film, education, and government. Our goal here at Social with the Side of Justice is to bring awareness to this issue, and we also want to highlight those individuals who are fighting to bring more representation into their respective fields. Today's episode will be hosted by me, Yasmin Oliveira, and me, Larissa Pessoa. On today's episode, we will be joined by Dr. Nicole Pullman and Dr. Vernon Smith, the directors of Monmouth University Social Justice Academy. Dr. Nicole Pullman is a proud Latina and a first-generation professor who uses her platform to advocate for social justice. At Monmouth University, she teaches classes on social justice and diversity, as well as counselor education. Dr. Pullerman's research focuses on the impacts of the imposter phenomenon on the mental health and historically underrepresented college students. Dr. Vernon Smith is also a professor at Monmouth University. Dr. Smith teaches courses that are centered around social justice advocacy and educational counseling. His research has been focused around empowering young black males. Through this research, Dr. Smith has created the Empowering Young Black Males Leadership Mentoring Program. I'm so excited for you. For the both of you to join us today, and we hope that you enjoyed the show. Social with a Side of Justice is sponsored by Long Branch Public Schools Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Dr. Pullman and Dr. Smith, we just want to start off by saying thank you and taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. Now, if you don't mind, we want to start out with the beginning of your stories. So, our first question is, where did you both grow up? colleague has passed it on to me. So, <laughs> as I said earlier, I'm originally from the Bahamas. I grew up in the Bahamas. And how many of you have been to paradise? And so it's a country, small country, many little islands, but predominantly black people, right? Black-skinned people. And a lot of tourists. And so my life growing up there, I was centered around leadership that looked like me. And then I transitioned to the U.S. for high school, so to Alabama. So that was a rude awakening. Mm. But do you want me to go into that detail? I mean, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Sure, okay. <laughs> so that was a little bit different, right? Montgomery, Alabama. I um, went to high school. I got um, offered to play baseball and basketball there. And um, my time there and connecting with my other classmates and students, and we lived in the community, man, that's where I learned really what my black skin meant and, and that lived experience because they were like, hey, back then I went understand, Stan, if you see the police, you better run because if you don't run, they're going to either beat you or they're going to put some kind of crime on you. And I'm like, man. So we were running, me and my other friends, because there were a couple of us who came over we were running every time we saw the police. And I just, like, man, I'm not a criminal. You know, this ain't the life I've lived. And it was like a rude awakening for me. But recognizing that that was their lived experience from childhood to where they were at now. And so we would be followed around. And, and it, it was real. And that's why I really got to understand what racism was all about, living in Alabama. Um, how did you feel that shaped you? Wow, that's, that's why I'm doing this work today, just recognizing that 
it shouldn't have to be like this. And the interesting thing, I always share my story because as a black man, I walk through this world and people see my skin, they respond to me a certain way. Um, I always say, but I have a privilege of having a PhD now. So when they talk with me and they get to know that side of me, it's a little different how they respond. But also I realized that when I spoke with other um, people and I would share that I'm from the Bahamas, they changed the way they talked to me. You know, it's almost like, oh, you're from paradise. I need to get to know you a little bit better um, as opposed to this standoffishness. So I realized that I also walk in this world with a privilege when I share my story of being from the Bahamas because I guess people think it's you from paradise. But you know what? It's not always paradise. So, so yeah, it has shaped me in so many ways that um, why I'm doing this work today because, you know, I, I've lived it. Thank you for sharing that. That that was really impactful and like being able to talk about how much of like a culture shock America really did put on you, especially just because of the color of your skin. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having us. Um, I'm really excited and so impressed to see this student-led podcast. So I just needed to get that out. Um, my story, um, I was um, born and raised in northern New Jersey, in Passaic, New Jersey. It's a smaller inner city. Usually people don't know where that is unless you're from northern New Jersey. And then I usually say like, do you know Patterson? And people say, oh yeah. And I'm like, mm, it's about 15 minutes from there. Just think of it as like a smaller Patterson. Um, so I grew up born and raised in Passaic, New Jersey um, with Puerto Rican roots. Uh, my father was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, and my mother was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, so growing up in Passaic, New Jersey, you know, most of the people in Passaic, New Jersey looked like me. Um and it was not until I actually went to college where I was in the minority um, at a predominantly white institution. So that was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, so, you know, growing up low income, um, the first in my um, immediate household to earn a high school diploma with no plans to go to college. And I always like to share that because that's such an important part of my story because now that I have a PhD, people assume that, you know, I always had these lofty plans of going on to college and then earning a master's degree and then earning a doctoral degree. And that could not be <laughs> further from the truth. It was only because of my high school counselor um, that I decided to apply to different colleges. I had no plans, right? The expectation in my home was that I go to work. And it was a really big deal that I graduated from high school. Um, and if it were not for my uh, high school counselor, my senior year, January of my senior year to be specific, my, my life would have been incredibly different right now. Um, so my story being um, a first-gen college student, you know, first in my family to do all of that. Again, then again, thinking about going on for a PhD, it was really, it was lonely. It was isolating. But now when I look at my work and what I do in relation to the Social Justice Academy, in relation to uh, my faculty role, and really in relation to all of the other things that I do beyond Monmouth, it is rooted in the fact that 
I fully recognize that my life could have been completely different if someone did not instill in me just a little bit of faith and hope in myself that there was more than this little town called Passaic, New Jersey, and more than, I'll say, you know, simply going to work. There's nothing wrong with going straight into work. But for me, college changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, And all of my work has been dedicated to supporting first-generation college students, specifically um, from BIPOC communities. And now I get to teach and train future school counselors and student affairs professionals to work with those students the very same way that I needed. So, you know, it's it's beautiful to think back when we can sort of think back decades and say like how did I get here? <laughs> and and it's it's a beautiful thing, but so much of our story are the pieces that no one sees unless we tell those. So, I think something like this giving folks an opportunity to really share their stories so that students and others don't only see what's in front of us, right? Wow, the PhD, but that they really understand everything that had to happen and the struggles and the triumphs that go into that. Um, I, I think we don't do that enough. So thank you for the opportunity to do that today. So it seems like your experience really drove you to your guys' careers. I think that like it's always like a learning experience and you just kind of get to a great Place with it. Yes. Um, now, was education always something you guys wanted to do? To be honest, leaving high school in Alabama, I was destined to become an engineer. Oh. <laughs> you know, I wanted to do mechanical engineering. And um, that's really interesting. But again, being from the Bahamas, I was offered a lot of scholarships, and people didn't realize that I also didn't have. I wasn't actually a resident of the U.S., so FAFSA and all those things in the past, whatever, Pell Grants didn't work for me. And so I ended up going to a small school in Illinois where I got to play baseball there. And um, they didn't really have an engineering program. And I'm like, man, I'll have to transfer to this school and the next. And having limited, like um, Dr. Pulliam said, I'm also first generation, so what would that look like, you know? And I'm like, well, what else can I major in? And I thought about it. What was making money? Accounting, computers, yay! And so I was all excited. I took my first accounting class, and I remember I was working on a problem all night, and the snow fell for the first time. Being from the Bahamas, first time seeing snow, all my classmates and residents, life students were out there playing, having fun, throwing snowball, and I was sitting there. I'm like, can I really do this for the rest of my life? This is boring, you know? (laughs) And so I took my first psychology class, and, man, I I got excited. And I realized that throughout my life, my peers and my friends always brought their problems to me, and I was always the person that they could confide in and talk with. And I started to fall in love with psychology. And and that's where I'm at today in terms of I then pursued a a master's in uh, Marriage and family, and then decided to continue on and get my PhD in counselor education and supervision. And so I'm excited about being a counselor educator because I'm helping to help produce other counselors to do great social justice advocacy work in schools and in the communities. 
That's amazing. So the easy, the quick answer to your question is <laughs> yes, right? Like when I was in kindergarten, I remember asking my kindergarten teacher at the end of the school year, do you have any, back then we would call them like dittos or like Xerox. Do you have any extra dittos or, you know, like books that I can bring home over the summer so that I can play teacher with my older sister? Right. So like if I think back to that, I would say yes. But the 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 difficult answer was no, that's not where I I stayed again. In fact, if you think about it, my, again, my plan was to go to work and it wasn't necessarily to start a career. It was I don't know. I was just going to get a job somewhere just to simply make money. Um, and remember, because I had no plans to go to college, I didn't really you know, it's when I think back, I had no, I had no dreams. I had no goals because it wasn't, number one, it wasn't really discussed in my home. Um, and I laughed too, right? So when I was in high school, I worked in McDonald's. That was my very first job. And the first thing that I did <laughs> with my paycheck was I, I cashed it. Um, I cashed my check and then I ran across the street and I got my nails done. <laughs> so then I was like, I think I want to be a manicurist. Like I had no, you know, th these were the no things that I, no, no like just nothing. <laughs> and then I, we would start to get these like mailings in our home. Um, this one particular school, um, they would always advertise like um, certificates, like become a paralegal. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. Right. I had no frame of reference. Right. I had no dreams. I had no goals because no one was really talking about those things. Right. I had, I did grow up in a two parent home, each one of them working two jobs each. It was me and my older sister. Right. So it wasn't that my parents didn't care. It's just they were working all the time. Right. And I was just they were happy that I was in school and doing well. And that was it. Um, but I didn't have any dreams. I didn't have any goals because with the exception of my high school counselor, no one like took the time to have those conversations with me, right? And it, so I, I got into, um, I applied to five colleges. I, I decided on Ramapo College of New Jersey. Um, and I was an EOF student, Educational Opportunity Front Fund student. And at that moment, folks who worked in the EOF program invested in me, right? I got really intensive advising and counseling and I connected with the director and the associate director and it was at that point that I really started to understand like the connection between like what do you, what can I do with a major in x and that will lead to a variety of possibilities but when I applied to college I applied as a business major and Again, remember what I told you, right? Like I had no dreams, I had no goals. Um, and I only applied to be a business major because I <laughs> I thought that when I got older, I, I saw myself wearing business suits. Like I, I wanted to wear suits. <laughs> so in my 17-year-old <laughs> mind, I was like, I guess that means I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a businesswoman. I took my first business class and I was like, this is boring. Um, <laughs> And then I took my first psychology class, like my colleague, Dr. Smith, in my second semester, and I loved it. Still had no idea what that would equate to in the future, though. You were right? just like, I might as well just try it out. Right. Let me just happens. try it out. But there's really no connection. There's tons of things you can do with a degree in psychology. 
So I became a student leader on campus. I was a resident assistant, and then I got a promotion where I was supervising RAs. So I became a student leader, and then I discovered that there was a career working in colleges. I was like, you could do this for a living? Like, <laughs> this is pretty cool. And that was sort of my, my, my lead into education, but I did some mental health work right out of college. I did some nonprofit work where I worked with K-12 um, schools in the Newark school system, and then eventually um, led back to working you know, on a college campus. But there's a long, windy road that I think many people don't know, especially students, right? And again, I tell that story because people need to hear that very few of us have it all figured out at 17, 18, 19, 20, right? Like, <laughs> and then we get to a point in our careers where we're like, this is cool, but I want to do more. And that's okay too, right? I teach the, um, one of the classes that I teach is career counseling and development. And the beauty of that is like, our careers are not this, like, there's, there's really no end goal, right? We might be doing something fulfilling, but then there's tons of things that we're doing outside of our main roles too. So, you know, it's long, it's windy, it's usually not clear. And I'm sure if you ask any of your teachers, counselors, or anyone else, they, they probably have similar stories. So, um, again, education, I believe, is one, if not the most powerful um, profession to be in because we have the ability to shape and mold and share our stories. Um, and it mattered to me, right? Going back to my high school counselor, I was like, wow, if he has the potential to change the trajectory of my entire life, I'm moved to do the same thing for students. So that's that's sort of where I started in in at the college level. That's really inspiring. I kind of related a lot to like what you were saying about like not really knowing what you want to do and just wanting to go straight to work because it's like growing up, like especially like Latina, I don't know, because it's like no one really talks about wanting to go to college as often as we do like nowadays. Because growing up, my parents was always talking about you got to get a job, you got to work, get money, make sure that you're financially stable. Mm -hmm. But like never about oh, you need to go to college so that you can find the passion that you have for, like, just for your everyday life. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, passion? What? Yeah. I don't know. It <laughs> seems like you guys are really passionate yeah. about this. No, we are. But I think, yeah. to, at least for my parents, they're like, you don't go to work because you're passionate about it. You go make money and <laughs> you stay there for X number of years. And you, if you're lucky, you get a pension. Like, you know, like, those are the things that we talk about now. But, you know. Yeah. yeah speak, I want to have that. jobs, dog. In the Bahamas, I was on the, on the roof. I was working construction all my life. And I remember what motivated me. Like, man, I got to do something. I was wanting to be construction. Because I'm a, I'm a con contractor by license in the Bahamas, too. So that's a hobby. So <laughs> but I remember being on the roof. And it was so hot that summer. And I'm like, man, can I do this for the rest of my life? I don't think so. This is too hot. And I decided, you know what? Yeah, let me just continue doing the school thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So did you guys both begin your teaching careers at Monmouth University, or did you, like, begin somewhere else? Um, I began my full-time 
teaching role at Monmouth. Um, prior to that, when I was working at the college level, I started teaching um, both as part of my roles and then as a part-time instructor, you know, like first-year seminars. Um, I was teaching like a career course for first-year students. But then it really wasn't until I was in my doctoral program where I was given the opportunity um, to teach at the master's level in, in, in counseling classes. Um, but I still, I, my, when I started my doc program, I didn't know that I would become a full-time faculty member. I was already working full-time. Um, actually, I became an EOF counselor the very same, in the very same program that accepted me. So I was once a student, and then I came back years later, and I was an EOF counselor there, as well as another school in New York State, um, and I thought, all right, I'll just move up. To, I'll be a director one day or do something like that. Again, this is like a pattern for me, right? Like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I'll figure <laughs> it out. Just go with the flow. See go where life flow. takes you. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I started teaching more and more, like at the master's level and in counseling, I was like, you know what? I really enjoy this and I think I'm really good at it. Right. I was getting really good feedback and I had a really uh, wonderful mentor um, who kept instilling in me, like, I think you should like go the full-time route. And I was like, what? Again, I had never had a, a, f a professor that looked like me. So again, to me, that didn't even seem like a, f like a feasible goal for me. Um, but it really wasn't until probably my last year in my doctoral program. that I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to make the leap out of like college student affairs work and into full-time faculty. And then I was also adjuncting at other universities. So no, but Monmouth is the first place that I've worked as a full-time tenure track. Now I'm a tenured um, professor. So in terms of like a full-blown faculty career, I guess it's yes at the full-time level. <laughs> so I'm rather similar in terms of um really officially being as a full-time faculty, it was at Monmouth. But like um, Dr. Pulliam, after completing my master's, I went back to the Bahamas and um, worked in school as a school counselor for about three years. Then I transitioned to the university, which is now the University of the Bahamas, and I worked in counseling there. And I was considered a faculty, so I would teach all the first year classes like Dr. Pulliam, but I also taught in the School of Social Sciences where I would teach intro to psych and some other marriage and family classes there. And so it was all like adjunct, part-time. And so it was only after completing the PhD that we get the credentials to be in the class full-time to teach in a master's and counseling program. So similar track. And we could not wait to hire Dr. Smith. Actually, we, we interviewed him. Wasn't it the same day you defended your doctoral dissertation? Same day. Um, and I was on his search committee. Um, so he defended his dissertation, and then he had his interview for Monmouth, a virtual, <laughs> very same day. So we could not wait to offer him his first full-time faculty role. We were really excited to have him. Yeah. So quick question. How long have the both of you been like working together? Five, almost six years now. What wow. year did you start? Seven. 17, 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah, I started Monmouth in 2014. So, yeah, almost five, almost five years. Okay. And, she, and she is my mentor. <laughs> <laughs> Leading the way. Colleague. Yes. Yeah. She said colleague, but I look up to her. 
So the research that both of you guys have conducted is very social justice based. Why do you find this topic so important to you and in general? Well, I say I got to know how to start first. So. <laughs> My research really centers around um, black males in particular, and I remember. And it started even in my dissertation and research in particular because I went and I started to inquire. And I realized, you know, the messages are so negative around black males in terms of academic achievement and, and success. And I really struggled with that. And I'm like, I don't know if this is the true story that they're telling. And I consulted with a few faculty didn't get a sense that that was a good topic to really look into. Like, why are you going to be doing that? You're a black man, and people are just going to look at you just crying about the black man's story. And, and I sat there, and I started to say, well, if I don't tell the story through my research, who will? Because nobody was willing to pick up that mantle, it seemed. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it, despite what people are saying, because this is what I'm passionate about. And I was also passionate about the parental involvement component, like Dr. Pulliam said, because sometimes parents don't have the information. They haven't experienced going to college. Um, but in my research, I found that in working with academically successful college students, that their parents were involved in their lives. And I wanted to tease out those factors to see how can we begin to build those factors into the lives of our young men um, coming up today and then parents and their families and so realizing that parents were committed, they weren't showing up to every PTA because, like Dr. Pulliam said, they're working two, three jobs. They can't afford to take time off to show up to a school or to be involved in the PTA. But they were having conversations with, with their sons about um, pursuing um, further education, how they were doing in classes. And so I wanted to tell that story from a different lens, right? Rather than the deficit of what's not happening, let's talk about what's happening in these schools and what's happening as it relates to parents and their, and their sons or, or their children in general as it relates to education and future planning. And to know that, you know what stood out? It was the relationship was number one. The relationship that the parent had with their sons made a difference. But also number two was higher expectations, right? To, to believe in them and to, and to hold them accountable to that. And um, the, the third was actually then having the structure in place in terms of holding them accountable. So those pieces shape what I'm doing now as it relates to empowering young black males and um, my social justice work within the community, and not just for black males, but underserved populations in general. You know, How can we continue to inspire growth and opportunities? So how do we kick down those doors, in terms of rip down those walls so that we can actually have access and opportunities for our young people? So the way I look at it, I research the experiences of the student that I was, right? Like what was going on with me <laughs> when I was this, you know, young girl with no plans to go to college, first in my family, no what we call in the research ward, no no social capital, right? Like what's the bursar off it? Like, like no understanding of how to navigate the college experience, but I was quote unquote successful, right? I had really good grades. And if you look at my grades and my GPA on paper, you would say, well, 
look, despite all of that, you still thrived, right? Um, and after working on college campuses for many years, I discovered that the data that colleges and universities look at to determine whether students succeed or not is grades, right? I mean, we do it at the K-12 level too. But as a qualitative researcher or storyteller, that's what we call ourselves, there's a story to that that's missing, right? What is going on for our students, again, not just at the college level, but at the K-12 level from a mental health capacity, right? What's going on, right? Not just on paper, right? You're not just seeing that GPA, but what did that student have to endure? What, it, what was it that that student needed to, you know, quote unquote, succeed, not just academically, but how they felt upon graduation, right? Like, did they feel like they even mattered, right? I went to a predominantly white institution. Most of the students did not look like me. It was very quickly that I discovered that I was underprepared for college. I didn't know I was underprepared in high school because we were all at the same level, right? An A student, a B student at Passaic High School was all equivalent. But an A student, B student from Passaic High School going to Ramapo College of New Jersey, where a majority of my peers were from upper Bergen County, sort of upper, higher socioeconomic statuses. I was like, wait, my peers learned what? And they know how to write a college paper? And in that moment, I remember feeling angry. So when we talk about social justice, to me, that was my like entry point into understanding that there are some educational, a lot of educational inequities that exist. Why was it that my A at Passaic High School was not equivalent to an A in Mawa High School? Or, you know, Upper Saddle River, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll just rattle them off, but all the Upper Bergen Counties. Um, and that really shaped my understanding of, you know, like, what's going on here? So now I research those very things, right? What's going on for our students, despite the fact that the data shows that these students are succeeding, but how are they feeling? Like, we see you know, increased levels of anxiety and depression and all this other stuff that's going on that no one else sees, right? Our students are feeling it, but no one else sees that. And therefore, their needs get dismissed because colleges and universities, they look at retention and they look at numbers and they look at how quickly they're graduating. They're not looking at anything else. So that's where we come in as qualitative researchers to say, yeah, but... Look at all these other things that are going on. How equipped are you to manage these so that these students are not graduating out <laughs> with all this increased level of anxiety and feeling like they don't belong? Like, where, where's the money for that? Where are the offices that focus on that? Um, so I think, you know, we go into research because we're really curious about what's going on, but more importantly, how that can inform the profession, right? Like, now this is out there, what are you going to do about it? Right. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Can, <laughs> That's can, research. That's research. That's research. <laughs> yeah. Can wow. you guys explain to us what the Social Justice Academy is and how it came about? I'll, I'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So um, the Social Justice Academy at Monmouth University has now been in existence. Um, it will be two years soon. Next month, wow. we'll make two years already. So we are at, I know, <laughs> we are at midpoint of um, the four-year grant, um, which was funded by the Grunin Foundation. Um, and the focus of the Social Justice Academy is really geared toward providing free um, professional development for K-12 teachers, counselors, administrators, um, primarily focused on like one of the injustices, right? I know there's a question about what is social justice. The academy is primarily focused on anti-racist practices or the, the injustice of racism, you know, sort of how it overlaps with all these other injustices, um, but to provide those training opportunities free of charge for K-12 educators, counselors, administrators, and to also provide the funding to implement programmatic change in their schools. So um, it, it is an initiative that is housed at, Un at Monmouth University within the School of Education, um, but it, it was externally funded by the Grunin Foundation, who was moved back in 2020 to do something about all of the um, racial injustice um, that they were seeing. Now, racial injustice didn't just start happening in 2020 in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, but that's when everyone's, well, not everyone, let me take that back. That's when a lot more people started to pay attention for a variety of reasons. Um, and the Grunin Foundation said, you know what, we're not doing enough um, to combat this. And they believed that education and those who work within educational um, environments have the power to make the most change. Um, so I was hired as the inaugural director March of 2021, but it was it was non-existent. Um, Dr. Smith and I, along with our former dean and a few other colleagues, we co-wrote the grant. Um, but then when I was hired, I was like, well, this doesn't even exist. Like, this is just a program on paper. So now what? So the first year was really dedicated to, like, actually making it a thing, taking it off paper and turn, turning it into an actual program. Um, and uh, Dr. Trainer was one of our um, uh, inaugural fellows, we used to call them participants, which is really whack. So we, we <laughs> shifted that. They're called fellows now. Um, and then probably about um, a little over a year ago now, I realized this is a large endeavor and I need some additional assistance here. If we're really going to make this a thing, this is more than just a one-person job. Um, especially because my full-time role is still a faculty member. Um, and I, you know, I also manage the budget, which is $2 million. And I, I went to my dean and said, I'm going to rework this budget. And part of my rework is I'm going to write in <laughs> an assistant director um, and I'll write up the job description and I'll rework the budget, but I need an assistant director. And <laughs> lo and behold, Dr. Smith came on almost a year ago now. As yes. as the assistant director, so um, we've been able to do a lot more um, because, again, anytime it relates to these types of initiatives, like you need you need the financial resources. Number one, so check we have that. It's a two million dollar grant, but you also need people as resources to do the work. It is a heavy lift, um, 
So I was really happy to <laughs> to have Dr. Smith join me on this. So we have another two years to go right now. From what we know, um, we still have another two years to go. So we're at a really exciting point because we keep revamping and revising and improving the program as we continue to get um, some more data. So did I miss anything? No, um, I, I think the, the biggest thing, too, having somebody we can talk with because it's, it's lonely work sometimes doing this work, and it's emotionally heavy. And so I think that's a great thing, too, what I've learned working along with you for this project and so many shifting. Yes. That's a whole nother podcast. A whole nother podcast. Oh, my God, so many podcasts. <laughs> so why do you find this program so important? I think, well, number one, um, to get some really deeply embedded anti-racist focused training, number one, that costs money. And we know that schools are already um, struggling um, financially for the bare minimum. Um, so I think for us to be situated in a place where we could say, hey, we, we want to be able to impact change um, and to be able to provide this, again, number one, free of charge. So it does not cost the schools anything. It does not cost our, our, our fellows anything to get involved. That's number one, right? Um, we have been able to, you know, um, provide training and ongoing professional development with some heavy hitters in the field. Um, and none of that would be possible. I mean, it costs money to bring in trainers and to bring in you know, heavy hitting speakers who are out, not just in the education sphere, but just, you know, beyond that to really bring those opportunities um, to our educators. So I think, you know, that's number one. Um, number two, part of the academy is the summer component where where we offer that embedded training opportunity over the summer where some teachers and counselors and admin, well, the admins are working, um, but in a two-week um, time span where they get to really do a lot of their personal work. It's not just about training, like just learning stuff. A good deal of the curriculum in the academy is about like exploring our own biases, right? We all have them right? We all have our own identities. What does that even mean? So a lot of this work is deeply personal. Um, and a lot of schools, I mean, we love Long Branch. I mean, y'all have a whole school dedicated to social justice. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, but unfortunately, in a lot of other school districts, not just in the state of New Jersey, but across the country, you just don't see that. And a lot of schools who don't even want to touch the subject of social justice, which we're also finding, um, where we have teachers who want to do the work, but they work within schools that don't want to do the work. So we're saying, nope, we want you to do the work. We're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing. Um, because again, this work is important to us. So I just think it's it's a really good opportunity to be able to to broaden that work beyond Monmouth. Um, but I think it's it's personal work. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that in terms of the personal side of it and the whole idea. And I think about if we're going to, and I would say, how many of us really want a great nation? Are we really interested in building a great nation? If we're interested in building a great nation, 
then we should be interested in making sure that every one of our students that come through our doors are able to be successful. And, and that's not meaning, oh, man, they don't work hard or this, that, and the next. It's getting connected. And how do we engage with our students in a way to learn from them, learn about them, and to engage them in a way that they will continue to excel? And part of that is doing our own work because we bring our own biases into the classroom. We bring our own biases into our counseling offices and into administration. And so by doing our own work, then we can create those safer spaces, right, or brave spaces where our students could come and share their stories and talk about the fact that Dr. Pulliam said, I didn't have people talking to me about what am I going to be doing after, after high school. And so why is that? Because sometimes there are some biases that block us from talking to certain students. We make assumptions. And those assumptions, you know, good people have some biases too. And not because you don't want to do good work, but because of the world in which we live. I shared my story. Coming to the, from the Bahamas to America, I got a rude awakening. But I also learned from that, right? And, and I also learned that, you know what? In order to build this, we have to create avenues of trust on all sides. And so how do we do that? We help our students through these, in terms of helping the fellows, and they're able to connect with our students. Our students are able to make a difference. And guess what? That helps to change our society. And so, again, personal work, but it trickles down in terms of having an impact within our schools. It's very nice to hear that, like, you guys do really want to connect with, like, the students that you're, like, teaching. And you want to make sure that they have, they feel that impact so that they could take those lessons that they are learning within, the, like, Monmouth University and take that to the outside world. Yeah. So you also did mention that you do, you like a little school of social justice. So <laughs> does that mean that maybe in the future you will do a little collab with us? Wink, I love that. <laughs> Listen, I tell Dr. Smith all the time, I'm like, you know what I meant? Like, we don't get enough opportunity to go into the schools or even to, to witness the work that our fellows are doing. Like, we get them in, like, report form. And I was like, this is really boring. Like, I want to see more work in action yes. and the impact that it's making on the students um, and within the building. So, yes. Again, I, I think I just learned about the school because we have um, one of our alum um, from Monmouth who then went through the academy this year, uh, Sydney Laskina. Oh, um, yeah. She's, one of, she's an alum from our program. She's one of my former students. And I was like, wait, she works where? Long Branch, social justice. That's how I just found out about <laughs> this um, because of Sydney's application. Um, Almost a year ago. So, yes. We're going to have to interrogate her about this. <laughs> yeah. Please like, do. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'd like to thank you again for joining us. And you should, maybe you should guys, like, come visit us some more. See us when we do more podcasts. I love this. So, to conclude this, Dr. Pullman and Dr. Smith, we again would like to thank you again for dining with us here at Social with a Side of Justice, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. Now, 
we present you with our check. <laughs> I love it. Should I sign? Should we sign it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Of course. So you want our signatures? Yes, we do. I love this. Okay. Confirm it with the signature. Okay. <laughs>